I just felt impressed. I'm going to preach on Esther today and probably next week. So if you would turn to the book of Esther, so if you find 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther is right there, right before Job. So the book of Esther every year and up to this day is read once a year at a festival by the Jews at a festival called Purim. And it's a festival to celebrate Esther's deliverance from Haman. Haman was out to destroy all the Jews, the entire nation, and it's kind of been a pattern in their history. But it's a celebration of the deliverance that the Jewish nation received. And it's kind of funny, from what I understand, they'll gather. I've never been to one of these. I kind of wouldn't mind sitting in on it. But the Jews every year will gather in the synagogue and they read the story. And as they read the story, there's a lot of noise that comes from the crowd. Because what they encourage people to do is they have some noisemakers, but they also will boo and hiss and stomp their feet whenever the name of Haman is mentioned to try to drown out his name. Some of the congregations, they'll even shout out when Mordecai's name's mentioned, long live Mordecai, and cursed be Haman, and other ones will say, blessed be Esther, when all their different names are read. So it's, I guess it's quite an event. And the Purim, that, where they get that from, the P-U-R, are the lots that were cast. And Haman, we'll talk about it later, but at one point he cast lots to determine the date that he was going to destroy the Jews. And we'll see, he thought he had a plan, but God had other plans. Looking at the book of Esther, one of the most interesting things about the book is that the name of God is not mentioned one time in the entire book. It's the only book of all the 66 books of the Bible that the name of God isn't mentioned. And because of that, there's some people, including Luther, they didn't really particularly care for the book of Esther. But even though his name's not mentioned, he permeates, his hand permeates every chapter, every verse that's in this book. His presence and influence is there. Matthew Henry, I thought, said it well. He says, but though the name of God be not in it, meaning the book of Esther, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. The fact that God's name isn't mentioned, but that his hand is in there, it's like our life situations. And that really should bring us a lot of comfort because a lot of times we get in situations, we get in circumstances where God can seem distant. He can seem preoccupied with other things like the disciples when Jesus was in the boat. They're like, don't you even care? You're sleeping. Sometimes he seems distant, preoccupied. He can seem unconcerned. And a lot of times I think people will look at God as the God of Benjamin Franklin. He created a watch. The world's like a watch in our lives. He, he winds it up and then he just sits back and, and watches what happens. And like, it's not like he's personally involved. And sometimes it may seem that way, but that's not the way it is. You know, it may seem like that sometimes to some of the people we read about in the Bible, like Esther and her situation, or Gideon, or Joseph and his. I think that would be a good case where it seemed like, where is God's hand and what's going on here? Or David in the wilderness a lot of times. But all of them can look back, and I think we, many of us can in our lives, look back and see that God's hand was with us all along, or was with them all along. And sometimes his hand's invisible, but Yet it's directing every detail of your life, whether you know it or not. That's the evil and the good. He's directing everything that happens on this earth. He is sovereignly in control. That's what we see here in the book of Esther. It's one of the main things is that I'll put it this way, that God is a master chess player. He is the divine chess master because only he 
can see, only he can see the entire board. Sees it all at once. And only he can control every move of every piece, which he does. And only he can plan moves. You know, the great chess players, they're thinking 40 moves ahead with what they do. Well, he can do it 40, 100, 100 million moves ahead. I was telling my son, John, we were talking about things coming in here. Think about it. You don't even know what your next move might be because you might have to sneeze and you weren't planning on it. But God knows every move of every person on this earth before they ever do it all at once. I mean, that's kind of unfathomable, but that's how much in control that he is. So what we have on display here in the book of Esther is what's known as divine providence, his invisible providence. If you read a lot of Christian writers, they'll talk about the providential care of God. Our English word for providence is actually from the Latin providentia. And you break that down, pra, P-R-O, means before. And ventia, you get that from the Greek vidier, which is, means to see. Vidier, which is where we get our word, English word, video. So you put all of that together, put those two together, and providence means that God sees ahead of time. And not only that, included in that whole idea is he not only sees, but he's acting. He sees ahead and he's evolved and he's acting. That's what Almighty God does. He sees all the events, every single event that takes place ahead of time all at once. Like I said, we can't even see a minute ahead of time. And he knows what's going to happen. And he is constantly at work bringing to pass all of his purposes and plans. And nobody, no person, me or you, is going to thwart his plans. We're not going to thwart his plans. And this is not fatalism. We'll see this later. That doesn't mean our prayers don't matter and our choices we're not responsible for. We're dealing kind of with the other side today. So God being God, he knows all things that are going to happen. And his great and infinite wisdom allows him to orchestrate perfectly all events. His goodness assures us that he will be just and merciful with his children. And his unlimited power means that whatever he desires will happen. So Paul in Romans 11 in describing that he's had this great plan, he had this plan for the Jewish people. And when they fell, he grafted in us Gentiles and he said, we need to take heed and and fear lest we have the same unbelief they did and fall. But he's saying God has this great plan that he started back in the garden and has evolved through that all of the intricacies that caused it to work out clear up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ends by saying this in Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And he asked the question, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And the obvious answer is no one. And then he said, or who has become his counselor? That's what Job had to find out, didn't he? Like, who are you to counsel me? We're not going to be his counselor. And Paul says, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's the God we serve right there. And you combine that with, go back to Daniel. Think about Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, 
He thought he was the source of his power, his wisdom, his strength, the source of how his kingdom came to be. That's what he thought. And he said this in his arrogance. He says, it's not this Babylon. He's looking over his great empire. And it was great. And he was a mighty king. But he said, it's not this Babylon, the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. When he said that, and he'd already been warned, he'd already been warned about that, that God was going to humble him through a dream. A while later, time went on and he got lifted up in pride and said that arrogant statement. And God spoke to him directly from heaven. And he said, hey, Neb, I'm going to show you that you're just a nub. And really not even that. You're less than that because you're going to lose your mind. Mr. Greatness. And he did for seven years. We know the story. Lost his reason. He ate grass like an ox. Said he had fingernails like bird claws. And finally God restored his understanding back to him by his grace. And here what Nebuchadnezzar said. Here's the other side of seven years. He said this. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven. Not only that, but among the inhabitants of the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one. God does whatever he wants. And that's what we see clearly in the book of Esther. And I like what one writer said. He said, we live our lives under the careful, loving, gracious, albeit sovereign hand of our God. And the movements of time and history tick off according to his reckoning exactly as he ordained. The book of Esther answers the one question that we are all faced with in life, whether in a big way or in a small way. And that is this. It's whether... These presidents, these world's rulers, all the way down to your boss, your husband, your wife, your kids. And here's the question that it answers. Who holds ultimate power in the struggling world in which we live? Who holds ultimate power in the struggling world in which we live? Because you think about all of what you see in the news, all of what you see in the news. It's all about a struggle for power, isn't it? Whether it's on a local level, whether it's the national political level or the world level, it's all a power struggle, isn't it? I mean, that's really what we're looking at basically in the news. Who holds the ultimate power? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? Was it Hitler? Is it Putin? Is it President Trump? Is it the Shelbyville City Council? Who really holds ultimate power over our lives? Pilate in John 19, he's questioning the Lord Jesus and he asked him, he says, where are you from? Where are you from? And it says Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, you're not speaking to me. You're not speaking to me. He says, don't you know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> and Jesus answered to him and he said, you could not have power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. You don't have any power over me. Only power anyone has over it has been given to them from above. And I'll tell you what, when Pilate heard that, that made him more than just a little bit nervous. His wife had had a dream. Don't mess with this guy. 
And it said then he's looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. He doesn't want to mess with him. That's what that truth did. And we'll see that when Haman got to seeing that that's what's taking place, it made him more than just a little bit nervous, too, because it caused Haman to be hung on his own gallows. And when Joseph's brothers saw what had happened, made them a little bit terrified that all their scheming's coming back on top of their head. And they're thinking their brother, if he's normal, he's going to have revenge on us and take care of us. They're scared out of their wits. But Joseph saw the true picture, didn't he? He didn't see it maybe going through it all. But in the end, he says, oh, what you meant for evil, I see now. Now I see God meant it all along for good, for my good and for the people's good. The picture became clear. So we're going to see, studying Esther, that God's providential working, his power, his presence, his invisible influence is working through the lives of five main characters. We're going to be introduced to them today. Five main characters that are going to carry out his will. And we'll see that God is all through the Bible, but he is in control of all events, whether big or small. Spurgeon said he's in control of the dust that flies off the chariot wheel. Something that we would consider totally insignificant, but God's in control of even that. The sparrow that falls from the tree and on and on. That should be a great boost for our faith because we are not just a victim of the devil in our circumstances, are we? That being the case. So another thing in talking about Esther that's unusual is God intervenes in this entire book. But there is not one single miracle. He intervenes with his people when they were in bondage in Egypt, but that was a lot different. He intervened with his mighty hand, didn't he? All the judgments, the boils, the absolute darkness, the supernatural hail, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army in that sea. But in Esther, God's still in control, but he's manipulating events through the ordinary dealings of people with people is how it happens here, to bring about his divine results, to bring about his predetermined plans. Nothing in this whole story takes him surprised. But I'm saying that is just as miraculous as the parting of the Red Sea. And you don't think so? Well, then you try to start controlling people and events that you have to deal with to get your desired end. And then let me know how that works out for you. Because all of us have tried that at times. And a lot of times it just ends up in a total frustration, doesn't it? I mean, it has for me. It's the way it works. So let's look here. We're not going to read through the entire book of Esther. We'll just read certain portions. I'm I'm trusting that most people have read the story at one point at one time. I have a general idea. But let's look at the first four verses in Esther 1. And it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That is a huge territory. And it says in verse 2, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So the story of Esther begins by describing a party that is thrown by King Ahasuerus, the Persian king. He's better known in history as Xerxes. 
Hazarus it goes from the language they spoke into Hebrew and to Greek, and Xerxes really was his Greek name, and that's typically how he's known to most historians. Now, his father, give a little background here, his father was Darius, who had successfully tried to subdue Greece. He subdued part of it, but when he came and attacked Athens at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, he was defeated, summarily defeated, and he wanted revenge. Problem was, he died before he could get his revenge. So his son, Azaharius here, is going to get revenge. And what he's going to do is he's going to assemble a group of 250,000 men to go in and conquer Greece. And that's what this party's all about. This is when he's gathering them all together to get their battle plans together. To go on and finish the story, though, he never conquers Greece. In fact, in the end, Alexander the Great conquers him. And Persia comes to an end and the great Greek empire comes into being. But he's having this great party now. That's what we're entering into here in the beginning of this chapter before he goes to Greece. It's a war planning party. That's what this party's all about, having all these princes here. It's a war strategy summit and it lasts a long time. 180 days is six months. That's how long this party goes on for. So he's bringing in the military leaders, the princes, the governors from 127 provinces to plan the attack they're going to have on Greece to get their support, to show them his riches, to make them loyal to him. That's what this is all about. And at the end of this six month summit, the king decides I'm going to have a big pre victory party. So he throws a party and he's not just going to have the 127 province leaders here, but he's also going to have all the inhabitants of the capital city, Shushan, because they've been having to put up with this party for six months, probably help out. So he's going to get everybody happy. So for seven days, it's a drinking party, right? And you don't have to drink, he said, but most of them did. And at the end of that seven days, the king and his guests are feeling pretty good. They're drunk. And he decides he's going to call for his wife, the beautiful Queen Vashti. And he wants to bring her in and he wants her to display her beauty before all of the male guests. And she refuses. And this makes him furious. Some of his advisors say, look, this could be a problem for all the men in your kingdom. Look what it says down in verse 17 of chapter one. They tell him for the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. And when they report, King Azarius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, they said, noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that have heard of the behavior of the queen, and thus there will be an excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered. And here was a decree. Vashti is gone. She shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So Vashti's banished. Every man is now the king of his castle. So they got to speak his language. And it's set up for Esther to move in. Now, look, the point of chapter one is not that excessive drinking leads to divorce. That's not the point he's trying to make. Well, what this writer and the writer probably was Mordecai. We don't know for sure, but the writer of the Septuagint believe Mordecai actually wrote this story. It would have had to have been somebody that knew the inner workings 
of the palace. It was probably him. One of the early church fathers said it was Mordecai. But regardless, the writer is painting the picture that Azurius or Xerxes has great power. They're wanting you to see that. He has this great power, but he yields this power in unpredictable, uncontrollable ways. And he's a volatile person, extremely volatile. So in other words, this court, the court of the Persians is a dangerous place. The king of this court, he can be very generous. He has this great party, but he's also extremely violent. When they go over to have this war and conquer Greece, there's a Greek historian, Herodotus, who wrote that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, he ordered this bridge to be built so his men could cross over into Greece. And while it was under construction, this violent storm comes in and destroys the bridge before his armies could, could cross. This guy just blew his top. When that happened, there was 250 engineers of his working on this bridge. He had all 250 of them beheaded immediately because of that. And not only that, this kind of shows you how he's a little unhinged. He had the ocean itself, the sea, lashed with 300 whips by 300 soldiers to chastise it for its insubordination. And that's the truth. What he's letting us know through this is that his people, Esther and Mordecai, are up against great odds. Because a lot of times, isn't that the way it looks? I mean, think about Peter when he's taken by Herod. Herod, look at what he had done to James. It looks like he doesn't stand a chance, does he? Doesn't stand a prayer, even though they're praying for him. But a lot of times we get in situations, whether it's domestic, at work, or whatever, and it just seems like this guy here, I got a boss that's out of control or whatever. And these odds are more than God can handle sometimes, it might seem like, right? And he's showing us here, that's what he's painting a picture of. This guy is a nut and he's got total power. What the Lord's showing us is that being the case, it doesn't matter. When God's on your side, these two people, as we'll see, they not only survive him, which many don't, but they thrive and are given favor and prosper right in his midst. It's what happens. So it's also interesting that the story doesn't begin to talk about Esther and Mordecai. The two godly people in the story talks about two worldly, ungodly rulers. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, I'm going to call him Xerxes, it's easier for me to say, from here on out, and Queen Vashti. And what we see here is how God takes their decisions that they made, and they would have had no idea that these decisions they're making, how much they would affect world history, would have had no idea. And he uses their decisions to affect the deliverance of his people, his purposes. So this drunken Xerxes decides while he's drunk that he is going to show off his shapely wife, the queen. And in doing that, in making that simple decision, he sets in motion the rest of the events of the book, doesn't he? And listen, what we have here, Proverbs 21, 1 says this, the king's heart, his decisions is in the hand of the Lord. And it says, as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wills. The decisions that our president makes, he thinks he's making, he's getting it. All of it is God's hand is on every single one of them. He's only doing what God wants him to do every step of the way. I don't care what leader you're talking about. 
And that's what's going on here. He's showing us that. And here, the reason that's such a big deal is Xerxes to command his wife to do what she did. That was against the customs of the Persians. If he wasn't drunk and God was, didn't have his hand on it, that never would have happened. And so he's not right in that. But then from her side, for her to refuse to come and to embarrass and humiliate him is not using much wisdom, is it? I mean, nobody's going to fault her because she obeyed her husband and appeared before these men. But, but in her pride, she says, I'm not going to do that. So listen, in a way, they're both wrong, aren't they? They're both heathens. They don't have godly principles guiding their life. What we're seeing here is God takes two wrongs and makes a right. He makes their two wrongs become room for Esther to move in. His hands in everything that's going on here. And the other thing I thought was pointed out, I thought was interesting is the author of Esther could have used a lot of examples to show what life in the court was like. But instead he chose this example between the king and the queen, between a man and a woman. Because in the world at that time, men had all the power. They had all the power. And women were treated like second class citizens. We see that right away. Vashti had no say so. She's banished. That's the end of her. She's banished from the king's present. But here, God, God in his wisdom and power is going to turn upside down and make foolish man in his power and wisdom. What does he do? He takes this little Jewish orphan girl and has her outmaneuver the king and his trusted advisor, Haman, because that is the way God works. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen the weak things of the world to do what? To shame the mighty. And that's what we have taking place here. Chapter 1 introduces us to King Xerxes and Queen Vashti. Those are the first two characters. Over to chapter 2, that brings in the next two characters, Esther and Mordecai. Now, you don't have this here, but his, you know historically, and scholars know that Chapter 2 actually happens four years after chapter 1. There's a four-year gap there. Xerxes, had, he'd made his plans for war in chapter 1. He'd gone off to war, was defeated by the Greeks, and he's come back home, and he's frustrated. Frustrated with his loss, probably depressed. He remembers old Queen Vashti. She was beautiful, and really, she was a comfort to me. She was nice to me. Why did I have to go and do all that? That's kind of what you get. So he needs a distraction. So guess what? It's time to select a new queen. And that's what we have happen. And look what it says here in the first four verses of chapter 2. And after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So old King Xerxes here is going to have a beauty contest to select his wife. It's the Miss Medes and Persian beauty contest. And so they appoint officials in every province and they said, you grab out the most beautiful young virgins in your provinces and send them to Shushan, which they did. And Josephus writes, Josephus the Jewish historian writes that out of all those brought 400 
out of all of them that were brought. It doesn't say this in the word, but this is what Josephus says. And good enough for me, were chosen as the finalist. They made the final cut. We're introduced after this in verses 5 on to Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai were cousins. Mordecai was 15 years older. Both of their parents, Mordecai and Esther, had been carried off into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Now look what it says here in verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. We have a Hadassah in our church. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai, her cousin, took her in as his own daughter. So Hadassah means myrtle. I suppose you all knew that. And Esther means a star. And the only thing used to describe Esther was her beauty. That's how she's described. The young woman, it says in verse 7, was young and beautiful. And the author, what he's doing there is, and we're going to see the importance of these first descriptions given of all these people. But what he's doing there is he's comparing her to Vashti and all the other virgins, and he's showing you, giving you an indication of her place in this story. Now, the rabbis... Ain't the old Jewish rabbis, they claimed that Esther was one of the four most beautiful women in the world. The other three were Sarah, Rahab, and Abigail. That's what the Jewish rabbis said. I wouldn't argue with one of those guys. But anyways, that's what they said. Because of her unusual beauty, she's not overlooked. When the king's agents go out and select who they're going to select, and she's taken to the king's palace, it tells us these young women were given quite the beauty preparation. If you think your wife takes a long time to get ready to go to church or to go out to eat, that is nothing compared to these women. They get 12 months to be ready. That's what it says, 12 months preparation. You know, they had to use perfumes, oils, spices. It's elaborate what all they went through just to get things just right for when they had their moment with the king. They had it to be smelling just right. Their skin had to be feeling just right. And they're trained how to act in the court of the king. And here's the thing. All but one of them, all but one of them, and one's going to be selected. All but one of them, all they're going to do for their life, they're in their 20s, they're going to spend the night with the king. And after that, if they're not one of the lucky ones chosen, only one out of the 400, guess what? They, they are put away. They're going to live in luxury, but they're going to live a desolate life, secluded life for the rest of their life. Now think about that. That doesn't seem very nice, does it? That's the way it was in this kingdom. So once again, it seems against all odds that Esther would be the one chosen except for one major factor, one major factor, and that is that God is in control. As I've said, directing, influencing all that's involved. So God, and we see this happen with Joseph, he gave her favor with everyone she came in contact with. Haggai, the man who was in charge of all the women, he loved her. So look what it says here again in verse 8. Towards the middle of verse 8, it says that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. And verse 9 goes on to say, now the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. And also here's the favor Esther was given everywhere she went. Look down in verse 15. Towards the, at the very end of verse 15, the last sentence, it says, And Esther obtained favor in the sight 
of all who saw her. And then look in verse 17, it says, Even the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. That's God at work there through all of that, isn't it? He's also at work in her nature, in her character, because she was just the opposite of proud Vashti. Because she was a meek woman. And we know that because we say, it says twice, she obeyed everything her cousin Mordecai asked her to do. Even when she was named queen and put in power, she still submitted to him. He didn't ask her to lie. He said, you just don't have to go tell them all who you are. Because there was a very strong anti-Semitic influence in that area at the time. Very strong as we'll see. And she obeyed everything he said. God had his eye on her. She was an orphan girl. And God is called the father of the fatherless. And it says in Psalm 27, 10, when my father and mother forsake me, it says, then the Lord will take care of me. And that's what he did for her. And that's the way God works. Hannah, Hannah couldn't have her children. She was picked on by the other wife. Remember that story in 1 Samuel? So distraught, so distressed. And she prayed, and Eli thought she was drunk. She said, no, I'm not drunk. It's the distress of my heart coming out. And Eli says, no, you will have a son this time next year. So when she has that son, and she weans him, and she brings Samuel up to Eli to give him over, she prays a prayer that to me is, is one of my favorite prayers, probably the most beautiful prayer in the Bible. But in part of that prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verses 7 and 8, this is what it says. This is how God works. It says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. And it says this, He raises the poor from the dust and He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. And think about it. Here's this young orphan girl, Esther. She's not a native of Persia. And she's chosen by the most powerful man in the world at that time to be his queen. It's like Joseph down in Egypt. Only God could do that. And he did that. This is not some made up fable. That picture we have of Esther and Mordecai is also shown to be a godly man. So Matthew Henry, if you read Ezra 2.2, I believe it is, it's listed there, the people that returned that were in captivity that were willing to return because not all were. You know, a lot of these guys will criticize Mordecai. If he's such a godly man, why didn't he return with the rest of the remnant? Because most of them stayed. They got comfortable living in Babylon and Persia. They had good jobs. They didn't uproot their family. They didn't want to go back to that uncertain environment in Jerusalem. You look in Ezra 2, too, his name is mentioned, and Mordecai is mentioned, whether it's the same one, you couldn't prove it. But this Lightfoot believes, this Dr. Lightfoot that Matthew Henry quotes, believe Mordecai went back with that first group, helped all he could, but then he came back to watch over his cousin and also help whoever else he could help. He had an appointment in the government. Apparently, to sit in the gate, you would have had to have a government appointment. But also, Mordecai was a godly man. He took care of his orphaned cousin, but also he watched out for the king. He honored the king. So look what it says in chapter 2. Verses 21 to 23. And it says there, In those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, he overhears something. Here again, God's hand is in everything that goes on. Two of the king's eunuchs, 
Big Thon and Teresh. That sounds like a couple of thugs, doesn't it? Big Thon and Teresh, doorkeepers. They became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. Both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, here is another one of those events that God has got his sovereign, invisible hand on. Because here's the thing you don't know by reading this. Ordinarily, acts of loyalty, especially one like this where it saved the king's life, they were rewarded immediately and generously. It wasn't put off. But somehow, this one is overlooked. And he doesn't receive any kind of reward. But think about it. If Mordecai would have received his reward immediately, we'll see later. Things could not have worked out the way they did. The master chess player is at work moving these pieces, causing things to happen that wouldn't necessarily happen. Once again, we're just looking at everyday events, everyday decisions that are made that later become a major factor. A major factor in God sparing the entire nation of the Jews. So here we move in to chapter three, and it's our fifth and final character of our story. And this man is trouble. In fact, Haman sounds like the Hebrew word for evil. (laughs) He was he was evil. You know, what's funny is because of what I just said, you would have expected if you were reading this story for the first time, you would have expected to read next that Mordecai receives a promotion for what he did. And instead, we're reading about Haman, the Agagite being promoted. In the Old Testament stories, Hebrew narratives, when we're introduced, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but when we're introduced to a character, a new character, the characteristic that is used to describe them is the key to understanding their role in the story. So with Esther, it was her beauty. King Ahasuerus and his queen Vashti wife, the fact that they're king and queen and the power they have. When Mordecai is described back in chapter 2, verse 5, we're not told that he's a wise man, he's a good man. We're not told that he's an official in the king's government. What we're told about him, the way he's described and introduced, is that he's a Jew. Not only a Jew, but it goes all the way and it gives his ancestry that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's critical to the story. And when Haman here is introduced in chapter 3, he's introduced how? As Haman the Agagite. No small details. Here's the problem we have with the Bible a lot of times. The people back then that would have read this story, they would have made this connection right away. Because Mordecai, a Benjamite Jew, and Haman the Agagite had a family feud, and one that makes the Hatfields and the McCoys feud look like tiddlywinks. You know, I'm thinking that when I'm writing this, thinking, looks like tiddlywinks. I'm thinking, where do I ever get that expression, tiddlywinks? You know that old game where you try to flip those? Do you know tiddlywinks is making a comeback? <laughs> and of all places, it's like big in Cambridge University in England. Come on now, tiddlywinks is alive and well. That's good to know. You can get it on Amazon, I'm sure. But anyways, the feud going on there with Mordecai and Haman, like I said, it, it makes the Hatfields and McCoys small in comparison. Understanding these family origins, which is the way they describe these two men, is key to understanding Haman's hatred of the Jews and his desire to destroy the entire race. This hostility between the Jews and the Agagites, 
the Amalekites goes back a thousand years to the time of the Exodus. If you remember the story when Israel had just come out of Egypt, they're a vulnerable, newly formed people. And the Amalekites, they attack Israel and they attack her right away. This is before the law was given and the Ten Commandments and all of that. And they're seeking to destroy her. And Joshua is able to defeat them. This is back when Moses had to have his arms raised up. But at the end of that battle, Israel does defeat the Amalekites. But God swore this through Moses. He spoke through Moses and said this. He said, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And he also said, God swore this. He says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You can read that in Exodus chapter 17. And so fast forward from the Exodus 400 years to the reign of Saul, the first king of Israel. And he engages the Amalekites in war. And God had told him through Samuel, he's told to do what? We know utterly destroy them, isn't he? Man, women, children, and their beasts don't leave anything because God, through him, was seeking to fulfill his promise to utterly wipe them out. And yet, Saul, in his disobedience, does what? He spares who? Agag. Haman, the Agagite. His ancestry. Spares him, should have killed him. And what happens? Samuel comes and does what? Hacks him to pieces, doesn't he? You shouldn't have pitied him at all. Should not have pitied him at all. So Haman is a descendant of Agag. And those ones that have survived, they've had this hatred against Israel for what they did to the Amalekites and killing his king ancestor Agag. So when he hears that Mordecai is a Jew, not only a Jew, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin, where Saul was from, he hasn't forgotten just like the Hatfields and McCoys. The original people weren't there years later. They just don't forget these things. It's the way it works. And he wants to use this new power and authority and promotion he has. He's not bent on just destroying this one Jew, Mordecai, is he? Oh, no. He says, I can wait. to be. I want to destroy all of them. I want to finish what my people started a thousand years before and didn't do. That's his goal. So 550 years have passed since Saul and Agag had their little meeting. But the spirit that motivated the Amalekites to destroy God's people hadn't passed. Because it's the spirit of the devil. Mordecai hadn't forgotten either, had he? He hadn't forgotten that they were a cursed people. And so that's why we have this confrontation. Look in chapter 3, verse 2. Look what it says. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now what happened when they spake to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Oh, don't want to just settle for one. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people 
of Mordecai. Now that would have included the Jews that had gone back to Jerusalem. That would have included, that's basically the whole known world at the time. You don't have to feel sorry for Haman because he was a thoroughly wicked man. He is a perfect type of the Antichrist. How wicked was he? He was full of pride. If you look in verse 5, it says there, when Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow or pay him homage, he's filled with wrath. That's his pride manifest. He couldn't overlook that. He's an idolater. When you read verse 7, which we'll talk about, he seeks the soothsayers to see what he should do. His gods, his soothsayer, cast the lots. Let me see what they'll tell me what to do. He's an idolater. He's a liar. Look what he says in verse 8. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. That's a lie. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. He paints them in a way that's not true. They were very obedient to the king's laws. He's also a thief. goes on, look in verse 9, it says, If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver under the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Here's the thing. He's going to give just a portion of what he's going to get when he kills all these Jews and loots them. And he's acting like he's being so generous to the king. He's going to get a lot more than the 10,000 he puts in the king's treasuries. So he's a hypocrite. He's a thief. And he's a murderer. Look what it says in verse 13. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old. Little children and women in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So like I said, before you get feeling too sorry for Mr. Haman, old wicked Haman, he was a lying, thieving, idolatrous murderer. He was an evil man. And here's what we need to see, though. We need to see that despite his wicked intention to destroy God's people, despite his power, God is doing what? He's directing his wrath. Haman's doing what he wants to do. He's not a puppet in that sense, but God's directing his wrath and in controlling all events. Why? To show mercy, his great mercy on his people and also to bring glory to his name. So why was Haman promoted to power? Haman thinks he's being blessed. And you need to be careful sometimes. You think, man, I got all these blessings from the Lord. Well, you need to be careful. I was talking with someone the other day, the rich man and Lazarus, that rich man, he thought he was blessed by God, just like the Pharisees did. Oh, we got this money, power, clothing, friends, sumptuous dinners. And Haman's looking at it the same way. Just because you're financially blessed, materially blessed, even blessed with health, don't make the mistake that that's automatically a sign of God's blessing. Because why was Haman blessed? Why was Haman promoted? The answer is found in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, or it could have been to Haman, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. That's why Haman was raised up. That's why Pharaoh was raised up. But what we see is God's hand is in all that happens, sovereignly guiding, controlling, bringing his purposes to pass. The lot was cast in verse 7. The lot was cast. They kept casting to where it showed Haman's superstitious. 
He wants the gods on his side. He goes to the soothsayer and they keep casting those lots till it says, yeah, the day you should do this, Haman, is 11 months from now. 11 months from now, spring your plans. And let me tell you, who gave that date? Who is the one that truly gave that date? Because it wasn't Haman's gods. It wasn't the soothsayers. It wasn't even chance when those dice were cast, was it? That determined the time period. It was the God of heaven. Because Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If Haman had done that within a month, two months, three months, 11 months, that's God giving Mordecai and Esther plenty of time and the people to plenty of time to be prepared to defend themselves, which is what they end up doing against this wicked plot of Haman. Haman thinks he's in control. God is in control. And the other thing we see from this chapter three is that history and the Bible clearly show there's a spirit at work in the world that is bent on destroying God's people. Whether it's the Amalekites, Pharaoh, Haman, Hitler, China, or the coming Antichrist, that spirit has been at work and is at work to destroy God's people. All of those people, the Jews and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are public enemy number one in the devil's crosshairs. We are. That's the way it's always been and that's the way it will be up until the end. And the argument for that is always the same. If you look in verse 8, here's the argument that's given. And it says, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's laws. They do things differently. Because of that, he says, therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. He's saying, it's not in your best interest, king. These people are unique. They're different. Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that the pressure that's coming on us? You know, it's funny. We were the people known, amongst other things, as we didn't have TVs in our houses. Now, I'm not sitting here saying everyone's got to get rid of their TV because I'm not so ignorant to think, I got a TV in my house. And TV, there's not necessarily a bad thing. But here's the problem. We were known as a group that didn't have TVs. We didn't go to movies. We didn't watch all that garbage because we were known as a holy people or whatever. And then one time I go into one of these video places and they're telling me, no, they were saying they went in to get a video. The video they wanted, they couldn't find because someone from our church had rented it out. It was an R-rated movie. It was a bad movie. And he's like, you guys really have changed, haven't you? And I'm like, well, that's not a good testimony. The point I'm trying to make is, isn't the pressure to get us to just conform and be like the rest of the world? Isn't that what's going on here? That's what's happening, and, and that's what the devil's out to attack. If he can't get us from the inside, he'll get it from the outside. That fear of being different. We don't do things like everybody else. And who wants to be different that way? Just watched a movie, a true story about this young Jewish boy during the Holocaust. His parents sent him off in the woods. He had to survive out in the woods. He's over in Warsaw in Poland, and he's out in the woods. Over there, nobody's circumcised except the Jews. Now, in America, it's just the opposite. Everybody's circumcised here. But over there, that little boy, these people, they would get rewards for turning him in. And so he's different. And as soon as they... They were using the bathroom and those other boys noticed right away he is picked on. He gets his arm caught in this machinery, mangles his hand. They take him to the hospital. 
the woman that had taken care of him, she thought for sure he was a Polish boy. He had a good story and all that. Take his clothes off to do the operation. The doctor sees he's a Jewish boy. He said, I'm not operating on some Jewish brat. Walks out of the operating room. They wheel the little boy out in the hallway. He's laying there with his hand all mangled. He's dying because nobody will take care of him. And it just so happens God sends in this kindly old doctor, sees what's happening. He's like, what in the world is this boy sitting here dying? Takes him in the operating room. He goes, you know, yesterday we could have saved his hand. Now we're just trying to save his life. What happens? They have to cut his arm off because he's different. Now, praise God, he survived. He survived. They showed at the end he was an old man. They showed the real him. As an old man, he moved to Israel. Because his dad says, whatever you are, whatever you do, don't forget you're a Jew. And he went back to his people and was willing to be ostracized. Moved to Israel, had children, had grandchildren, lived to be, just died recently, lived to be in his 80s. There's that pressure there. You think Jewish people still don't feel it today? Everyone knows they're different. They have the jokes. And it's going to be the same with us. That's the way it is. That's the charge that was leveled against Daniel and his three friends. They won't bow the knee. They won't be like everybody else. They won't bow the knee to that golden image. And so they deserve to be burned. Burn them up. And Daniel, the law of the king is, you don't pray to anybody and ask for help except the king. And Daniel's like, I'm praying like I always have to the God of heaven three times a day. Feeding to the lions. That's the way it works. Feed him to the lions. The first century Christians, the emperors, the Roman emperors, they decided they want to have respect, given respect, they issue a decree that all loyal Roman citizens would offer incense in their honor to demonstrate their thanksgiving and their allegiance to this emperor for all the blessings he's bestowed on them. And when the Christians say, we can't do that, we can't offer worship like that to an emperor, we have allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is going to get that kind of worship from us. And what do they say? These people are traitors. They're guilty of treason. They're worthy of death. And that's why they killed them. It was the conservative emperors were the ones that trying to bring the Romans back to worshiping their gods. They're the ones that were the worst persecutors. The conservative emperors, Diocletian. That's the way it worked. And that same spirit is at work today. It's going to manifest itself shortly in the spirit of the Antichrist. Revelation 13 tells us when he opens his mouth in pride and blasphemes the God of heaven and demands, he demands what? The same thing as what's going on here. The man's respect and worship. Isn't that what these authorities do? You're going to respect and worship. You're going to do things the way we say, or you're going to pay the consequences. Isn't that the threat they put over our head? And we have to be to where we're sold out. We purposed in our heart. We're going to serve God. We're going to obey him, not man. We'll take the consequences. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Y'all shouldn't be looking at me like, that's what the Bible teaches. But the Antichrist, it says this about him. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The whole earth. All who dwell on the earth, it says, will worship him. All on the earth, it says, will worship him. Look what it goes on to say. Those will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So just like with Haman... Anyone that won't bow the knee to him, anyone that won't bow the knee to the Antichrist and the world system is going to be threatened to be 
destroyed. And Jesus had to face the same demand, didn't he, of Satan when he was in the temptation in the wilderness. Satan shows him, here's all the glories of the kingdom. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you. You don't have to suffer on the cross to receive that. And he said this, all the kingdoms of the world are mine. I'll give them to you. And you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus answered, away with you, Satan, away with you. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord our God and him only you shall serve. And Jesus's refusal to bow the knee is what caused his crucifixion. That's what caused it. But guess what? On the other side, it also, just like with Mordecai and Esther, it also led to his exaltation and glory, didn't it? I'd like to close by reading what one commentator wrote about this section of Esther. I just couldn't say it any better, so I thought I'd want to read what she said. It says, God's mysterious working. Most of us like to think that through thoughtful planning and wise living, we can successfully direct the course of our lives. That's true. While much of the time life might cooperate with our plans, all of us can probably look back and see how circumstances beyond our control have redirected our lives, whether for good or for sorrow. Our sense of ultimately being in control is at times revealed by life's circumstances to be an illusion. We think we're in control and life's circumstances show us that is just an illusion. You really aren't in so many ways. Whether we like it or not, we often feel caught in circumstances beyond our control. Life is full of seemingly insignificant events that in retrospect we recognize as changing the course of our lives. You that are married, think about how you met your wife. A lot of times it's like some crazy chain of events, how you get hooked up with somebody, you know? Like what he's saying here, the seemingly insignificant decision to go out to this bar one night and bam, there you found your wife. That wasn't what you were going out to do. It's odd to say every new day brings circumstances and decisions and we cannot know how one event will lead to another. Only God knows the end of a matter before it has ever begun. The author of Esther is demonstrating the workings of divine providence. God works mysteriously, patiently through a series of, quote, coincidental events and human decisions. Even those based on questionable motives and evil intents, all of the, quote, chance events in life are really working toward the end that God has ordained. Now, I thought this was good, what he pointed out about Esther. He said, Esther suffered the humiliation of being taken into the king's court to be sexually used. Apparently, no one considered what plans she might have had for her life. Plans perhaps to be a godly wife with a home and family. Mordecai suffered the humiliation of being deprived of his rightful reward after putting himself at risk to save the king's life when he reported the treacherous eunuchs. And to add insult to injury, Haman was all the while gaining the power that would eventually be turned against Mordecai and his people. There is a sad irony that when the wicked do prosper, God's people are often overlooked and unrewarded. And here's the last thing. It is frustrating when our best plans are overturned and our good deeds and hard work go unnoticed and unrewarded. Most bitterly, we often see others prosper who are less deserving. 
at least in our own opinion. Such injustice hurts, but the example of Esther and Mordecai give us reason to bear such situations with patience and grace. God is invisibly at work, making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. We cannot see the end of things from the middle and must walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I thought that was pretty good. So a lot of times we have our plans, what we want to do, and God says, no, i got other plans for you. And it's like, I would have never chosen these plans. But that's the plans he has for his end, for your good, ultimately. And I thought it was good, too. When you're in the middle of something, you can't see the end. Only God can. He's the one that can see it. Talked about this at prison last Wednesday. Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good. It's like I told those guys, that doesn't say all things are good. Some things are bad. Someone dying is bad. Losing your job is bad. This stuff with Mordecai, it's bad. He's not saying all things are good, praise the Lord. It's all good. I hate that expression. Certain group uses that all the time. It's not all good. But that's not what he's saying there. He's saying all things, good and bad, work together for good, for the ultimate good. But here's the clincher on the end. Not for everybody, because all things don't work too good for everybody, do they? They didn't work for good for Haman, did they? Because what does he say at the end of that? For those who love God, you have to love the Lord. And then you can know that all things are going to work together for good in your life. No matter what. Because I think it's one of the hardest things is to see injustice done, isn't it? When you know you haven't done anything and they're coming after you. And they're twisting things. That is the hardest thing to take. You just want to straighten things out and defend yourself. And a lot of times you've got to just leave it in the Lord's hands. But we're going to look today at the communion. That's the greatest injustice that's ever taken place on this earth. The pure, innocent, spotless, holy son of God had to hang naked, suffering a humiliating death as a common criminal. Hadn't done anything. And what does it say? When he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's what we see happening here in this story of Esther, isn't it? Commit yourself to him. Do what's right. And God can take something that looks like it's heading towards a terrible end. How are they going to get out of being destroyed? Well, we'll talk about that next time. Because that's where we're going to end. But ultimately, the hope God has given us is this glory that lies in front of us, doesn't it? He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen? That's the hope of the gospel. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again for your word, Lord, and the fact that we can see your sovereign hand is in everything we do in our lives, Lord. I ask you'll direct our hearts towards you to love you more, Lord, to serve you and to be willing to trust you in your goodness and your power that all things are working together for our good. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, this word that you've given us today and for speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen.